I had a previous commitment in uh, Boston on Thursday, but I had a really early flight out of Boston yesterday because I want to get here late morning and, and be here with you. But that flight just decided not to leave. So I finally got here last night, just in time for the last session. And um, it was wonderful to be here. It was a great session. And I heard just enough to know that I really didn't follow the rules in writing this talk. I guess I did not read the fine print or something. But um, anyway, I am just going to tell you why I'm a follower of Jesus. So I think that'll fit. But I became a Christian when I was seven years old. I was very young, yes. But I was also very sincere. My conversion was real. It took, it grabbed me, and that was good. What wasn't so good was that, like many children, I had a fairly toxic view of God. My God was a harsh, demanding tyrant, and if I believed, I believed that if I wanted to earn his love and his favor, I would have to be very good, I would have to follow all the rules, and I would have to work very hard. And so, as a child and a young adult, I did that. And then, as a pastor's wife, I did that. So in my 20s and 30s, I worked very, very, very hard trying to earn God's favor and his love. Unfortunately, I worked a little too hard for too long, and eventually I became physically sick, emotionally very depressed, and spiritually very confused. I had tried my whole life to please God, and I ended up being absolutely miserable in every way. So I decided at that point that if this was what it meant to be a Christian, if that's what it meant to love God and, and please God, then I didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, I couldn't do it anymore. God was a burden that I just no longer had the energy to bear. So I was 40 years old. I was the wife of a fairly visible pastor, and I had lost my faith. And I felt like a failure and a heretic, and I did not know what to do. And actually, for several very long years, I did not want to know what to do. I was stuck in a spiritual no-man's land, and I did not know the way out. But then a really amazing thing happened. A very wise mentor of mine said, okay, I have an idea. For a while, just forget everything you've ever known about Christianity. Forget the Old Testament for just a while. Forget Paul and the epistles, again, for just a while. And just read Jesus. Just read Jesus. So I did. For months, which actually grew into years, I just read Jesus. And here's what I found. I found a living presence who says, if you're weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. If you're empty, come to me and I'll fill you. If you're lonely, come to me and I'll be with you. And I realized that those words were often not just to weary Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern men and women in the first century, but to me, an empty, weary, depressed, confused American woman in the 20th century. In Jesus, I also found a God-man who welcomed children to crawl up on his lap and playfully patted their heads and honored their childlikeness, their innocence, their fragile vulnerability. And I thought if Jesus could welcome and embrace the children, maybe he can welcome and embrace me when I feel as weak and vulnerable as a child. And as I continued reading about Jesus, I discovered a man who broke all of the cultural rules about him, how men should treat women. There was one passage in particular that I read over and over again for months, and every time I read it, I wept. It's recorded in Mark 14. You all know the story. A woman enters a home where Jesus and his disciples are gathered, and she's carrying an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. 
Now, I don't know what her demeanor is like as she walks into that room. I don't know if she walks defiantly with her held, head held high or if she creeps through the shadows trying to be invisible. But I suspect that she leans into the shadows. But when she gets to Jesus, she does a very bold thing. She breaks the jar of perfume and pours the fragrant drops on Jesus' head. As she probably expects, the disciples are irate. Why has she done this, they ask. This perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. What a waste. What a waste indeed. Because you see, they watched her, but they didn't really see her. They didn't look into her heart. They didn't understand her, so they just criticized her. In fact, the text says they rebuked her harshly. But Jesus said, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. You see, Jesus actually saw her. He looked into her heart. He read her emotions. He understood her soul, her longing, and her passion. And he recognized that she had a deep, intuitive understanding of what the moment called for. He knew that the broken jar was a gift of love to him, and so he accepted it, affirmed it, and honored it. He actually said, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. What an affirmation of the soul of a woman. Never has there been such an affirmation. And I realized as I read that story over and over again that what, whenever I feel invisible or devalued or misunderstood, there is one who will look into my heart and discern my intent. And whenever he finds a little bit of love flowing from me to him, he will receive it and treasures it and treasure it because he sees and treasures me. And I will tell you very honestly that I need desperately to sit in that presence of unconditional love every day. I need to know, and beyond that I need to feel that I am loved despite my failures, love for the uniqueness of my true self, and loved as I sit quietly doing absolutely nothing to earn or buy or chase that love. Now I cannot wrap my, brown, my brain around what I just said, I don't know how Jesus makes his presence and his love known to me, but every time I get honest about my weariness, my shame, the loneliness at the core of my being, every time I get honest and lean into the brokenness inside of me, I find Jesus there loving me. So in Jesus, I found what I didn't even know I was looking for. I found the lover of my soul. And finding that changed everything for me. It became the foundation upon which I could build a life. And every day, as I rediscover Jesus as a lover of my soul, that foundation becomes even stronger. But it's not all I found in Jesus. At Jesus' first public appearance, he said, I have come to set the captives free and to preach good news to the poor. And then he threw the money changers out of the temple because they were exploiting the poor. And he said that whenever you feed the hungry or clothe the naked or tend the sick, it's like you're doing it for him. He said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus said crazy up down, upside down things, and he created a crazy upside down little community. And that crazy little community was known for the way it loved, not just within a little band of believers, but beyond it. They met daily to sing and pray and honor the presence of Jesus in their midst. And then they shared whatever they had so freely that none among them have any need. And they even pooled their resources to help those outside their little tribe. 
And according to histories of the early church, when deadly plagues cut a black swath through communities and all the normal healthy people left, the crazy followers of Jesus stayed because they knew they were called to care for the sick and for the least, and they weren't afraid of the consequences, even death. So in Jesus, the lover of my soul, I also found this, a radical call to compassionate action in the world, a radical call to compassionate action. And for me, that's really all I needed to find. In Jesus, the lover of my soul and the radical activist, I found the Christianity I was looking for. And I found the life I was looking for. And honestly, I think that's the life that everyone is looking for, whether they know it or not, or whether they can put it to words or not. And that's the beautiful life that we get to show them. But back to my story. In the midst of my ongoing spiritual journey that was kind of swirling around Jesus, I was invited to go to Bosnia and Croatia with a humanitarian organization. It was the early 90s, and there was a horrific war taking place as the former Yugoslavia crumbled. And I knew I was in no condition, physically, emotionally, or spiritually, to go to a war zone. But for some reason, I just couldn't say no, and so I went. As it turned out, I think my internal brokenness at that time opened me in a profound way to the brokenness that was around me. It was the first time I'd seen war up close, and I was stunned, stunned by what human beings do to one another. The day before I left to come home, I just went off by myself and climbed to the top of a little hill that overlooked the countryside of Bosnia. And I sat there for hours and wept and prayed for the women and the children I'd seen, for the widows and the orphans, for the traumatized and the displaced, so many suffering people. And while I prayed, an unbidden question started echoing in my mind. Am I my sister's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? And the reverberating answer was, yes, 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 you are your sister's keeper. So I asked, well, who is my sister? God, tell me, who is my sister? And so clearly, I sensed God say, they are all your sisters the Croatian Catholics, the Bosnian Muslims, the Serbian Orthodox, they and every other woman you will ever meet are all your sisters. And every man you will ever meet is your brother because they are all part of the human family that I've created. And I love them, whether they know that or not. So I learned that when you open your mind and your heart to God and to the world, you end up with a really huge family. And you realize that every single member of the family is as important to God as you are, or as your children are, or as your grandchildren are. And you can't possibly meet the need of every family member, but you can never dismiss their needs thoughtlessly, their family. And that realization has ambushed me over and over again. I'll be standing on a street corner somewhere and surrounded by strange music and strange language and clothes and culture and religion very different from mine, and I think, oh yeah, these are my people. This is my family. And that really changes everything. Since that first trip to Bosnia uh, 22 years ago, I've ended up in other war zones, and in recent years, mostly in the Middle East. 
And I hate the violence and the brutality of war. I can't even watch war movies, and I never have been able to. But just as Jesus walked into the depths of my own brokenness, so I believe he walks into the places of deepest and darkest brokenness in our world. And I believe he prepares and empowers and calls each of us to follow him into that brokenness. Certainly not all to war zones, and that may not be where he calls me in the future, but I have been so changed by what I've seen and experienced in recent years, and especially as I've met with Middle Eastern refugees. Some of the refugees I've met are Christians. Uh, most of them are Muslims. The director of one of the organizations I partner with in Jordan said, some of my staff are Christians, and some of them follow Jesus, and some of them don't. And some of my staff are Muslims, and some of them follow Jesus, and some of them don't. Now, I am not sure what it means to follow Jesus into the religions of the Middle East. And today, I'm not pretending that I know what it means, and I'm certainly not making any definitive statements about what it means. But I just want to end with two very short little stories. Last May, I sat with a gathering of about 200 Syrian Muslim refugee women in Amman, Jordan, and I was asked to speak to them. And I was terrified, <laughs> didn't know what to say, but I ended up telling them, among other things, that I believe Jesus is the lover of their souls, just like he's the lover of my soul. And I said that as a Christian, I believe Jesus shows us what God is like. So I believe God loves you very much, I said to them, and, and that he sees your losses and your pain and that he grieves with you. And as my friend, who was a Palestinian pastor's wife, uh, translated for me, the Syrian women smiled and nodded, and some of them cried a little bit. And afterwards, we hugged and kissed cheeks, and I snuggled with a lot of babies. And I don't know what was going on in that room and in the hearts of minds of those women. I don't know. I confess that it felt a little surreal to look out over that sea of covered women, some in black, some in purple polka dots, polka dots literally, but surreal or not, I will also say that it felt like a really holy sisterhood. And I'm really thankful I got to be a part of it. Now, one more story. Several weeks ago, I was in northern Iraq, meeting with displaced Iraqis who had fled the violence of ISIS. Again, such loss, such grief, and such trauma. I mean, for refugees and displaced people I met, all their dreams have turned to nightmares. And just to sit at their feet and hear their stories is a great honor. But during that trip, I was invited to dinner in the home of an Iraqi Sunni Muslim sheikh and about eight of his sheikh friends, mostly Sunni, but a couple of Shia. And Sheikh Ali, who was our host, asked me to tell Americans that ISIS does not represent him and his friends. He told me that the spirit of Jesus is in his heart. And then he gave me these prayer beads so that I would join him in praying for peace. Now, it was more than a little surreal to be one of two American women sitting on the floor and enjoying a feast with a room full of Muslim clerics. 
But I think back to those crazy early followers of Jesus. And they followed Jesus into some unexpected situations that perhaps felt a little surreal to them. So maybe surreal isn't bad when it comes to following Jesus. I, mean, I might be wrong about that. But I do know one thing for sure. There is a lot of hatred and evil and suffering and brokenness all over the world, including in the US. And we have the privilege of showing up in that brokenness with love and goodness and healing in the name of Jesus. And I can't think of a greater privilege, a greater adventure, or a greater calling. Thank you.